The following presentation of the Jaguars Podcast Network is presented by ViStar Credit Union. A football coach would be the first to tell you it's never about one guy. Win or lose, the game rarely rests on a single play or a single player. But some men do stand above their contemporaries. Some are just better at what they do. Some work harder than those around them. And some leave a more lasting impact. A mark that bears witness to a legacy. This is Perspectives, a look back at the first 25 years of the Jacksonville Jaguars through the eyes of the people who built the NFL's 30th franchise from the ground up. This is Tom Coughlin. Coach Coughlin checks all of those boxes, which is exactly why he was Wayne Weaver's choice to build the Jaguars. He is an excellent football coach. No one in football works with as much energy for as many hours as he does. And no one, no one cares as deeply as Tom about doing things the right way. You know, whenever you're a head coach, it's you. You know, it's your, you, and it's probably to a fault for me, all right? Because I've always felt, and I felt here, wrongly so, but I felt this was my team. This was my team. Because I was given that responsibility by Mr. Weaver. This was new ground for a man who had coached at the highest level of college and professional football for storied programs like the Giants, the Packers, and the Eagles. Putting together an NFL franchise wasn't in Coughlin's background, but he wasn't completely unprepared for the task. Nothing anywhere that I could read about how people did things because obviously those are some of the oldest in the history of the National Football League. So what really helped me, which is an interesting thing, when I I graduated from college, okay, at Syracuse University, I came back uh, in the master's program, and I was what they called a graduate assistant coach. And I helped coach the freshman team at Syracuse. There were still freshman teams and varsity teams. I got my degree. I took like 15 credit hours in the spring, uh, you know, which was heavy for graduate school, but I, I wanted to be done. I interviewed for a job at Rochester Institute of Technology. Rochester Institute of Technology had been playing club football for like two years, okay? They wanted someone to come in. They wanted uh, someone to be uh, an assistant coach for a year, take over the second year, and then build the program into a varsity program. And it would compete in what they called the Independent Collegiate Athletic Conference, which was quite frankly, for Division Three was loaded. Alfred, Hobart, St. Lawrence, Ithaca College, you know, all really, really good, good small college football teams. So when I came in, I was a, a, a secondary coach. I coached the defense on the secondary side of the ball for one year. Then I became the head football coach. And little did I know that what came with that was everything under the sun. In other words, I was the person who was supposed to collect the football team. I was supposed to coach the football team. I was supposed to figure out how to run a training camp and house the football team. I was supposed to make a schedule. I was to uh, establish all the traveling needs, the hotels, the buses, all of those things. I had to hire assistant coaches who were not going to be full-time. They were going to be part-time. 
I had to uh, have uh, something to say about how the the football field was lined, how the the grass was cut, how we wanted to do that. Uh, a couple of years later, we moved over to a prime field in the middle of campus, which was a soccer field that we had become a uh, had an opportunity then to play in front of bigger crowds and that type of thing. Uh, and I would still, I can remember pounding posts in the ground while the opponent drove up in his bus, you know, and they, what are you doing out there? Doing? What's it look like I'm doing? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting ropes together so we can have a game <laughs> and not have everybody on the field. What I was trying to say is uh, the organizational part, the putting things together part, how things came into play, what was the strategy? Certainly, uh, Brian, it was not as sophisticated as would be the case when I came to Jacksonville the first time in the spring of 94, but it gave me an advantage because I've seen it. From Rochester to Boston College, Coughlin built his career as an assistant coach, an offensive coordinator, and finally the head coach. His signature win, a stunning defeat of number one Notre Dame in South Bend in the fall of 1993, caught the attention of many in pro football, including an upstart group in North Florida. When uh, David Selden and Wayne Weaver came came calling, first of all, um, we met when we met in Providence, and uh, I was I, I lived in Walpole, Mass, which was maybe a half hour away. Uh, so I drove down, and, and I told Judy when I left, I said, "I'll be back in an hour. This is there's nothing going to be to this. This is." But the interview got real serious real fast. Because my the original phone call that was made to me, uh, my exact comment was, well, how many people do you have involved in the job? And, they, and uh, Selden said, five. I said, I'm not interested. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not interested. There's five. You know, you got plenty of people. And you don't. I mean, I just finished a bowl game. We recruited in the top 20 in the country. And, you know, I was pretty happy where I was. So he said, can I call you back? And I said, you can call me back anytime, but I'm, I'm not going to be interested. And he said, okay. So he called me back two weeks later, and he said, uh, would you be interested if I told you there were two and you were one of them? I said, well, that's a little different story. So I thought, well, you know, I mean, I can listen to anybody and so on. So I told Judy I'd be gone an hour. Uh, meeting started at 8. I was home at 11. Supposedly she turned to Brian, son Brian, when I left, and she said, uh, okay, Brian, get the map out. Where's Jacksonville? <laughs> one of those deals, you know? So... uh but when the opportunity came to come here uh, to Jacksonville, I was hired, I think I was the seventh employee. I say I am. There might have been more, but I think that was what it was. And I had a chance to listen to what um, uh, Mr. Weaver uh, had in mind, and I could set up my own calendar for when people would come on board. And so I put a lot of, of thought into that. Obviously, I needed a a personnel staff right away, you know, so I put my mind to work on that. So I literally had a uh, – I, I hired everybody who touched football. So I, you know, the trainers, um, the, the, as I said, um, the, the personnel side of the ball, um, certainly the coaching staff, um, I, I hired them all, okay? And I had a timely uh, way in which I would go about that. And the very first season for us um, in 94, when we didn't have a team, we acted like we had a team. We had game plans. 
on Monday and Tuesday. We traveled the country, went to a college game on Saturday, went to a pro game on Sunday. I had a personnel staff in place. We had a mock draft for the expansion draft. We had a mock draft that went along with the NFL draft in the spring. We did it all. We did it all so that we had gone through this prior to being under the gun and having to make those decisions that counted. So we did it all. I brought some of my coaches from Boston College, not all. I put them right to work immediately, um, and they would do the same thing I did. They'd be on the road on weekends, et cetera, et cetera, and then hired the rest of the staff immediately following the season. Uh, I was uh, really fortunate that a number of my friends who were outstanding NFL coaches invited me to go to their camps, so I would travel around the league in the summer just like I you know, studying and watching how people did things and keeping track of things and so on and so forth. That's where the Mark Burnell tip came in. And uh, so all of these things, all everything that I always say this, Brian, you know, you live, you, you, you learn as if you're going to live forever, okay? And you live as if you're going to die tomorrow. So I've always thought, I don't care how old you are or what, you better be learning all the time. You better be studying. You better be understanding the changes. You better be adjusting. You better be doing all those things. So everybody, everybody that I was with along the way, all the coaches, Frank Maloney, who gave me a chance to come back to Division One football, which was a great opportunity. Frank had been with Bo Schembechler. I had everything. Bo had been with Woody Hayes. I had all that. I had all their organizational stuff, everything, how they went about coaching, the toughness that they brought to the job. Um, so, and, and then all the coaches that I had the pleasure and the good fortune to be with, I learned from, okay? And even back as far as when I was my own head coach at Division Three. So these things all were in place when I came to Jacksonville in uh, February of 94 to be the head coach of the expansion Jacksonville Jaguars. Whenever that happens, you roll up your sleeves and, you know, you're a myth to your wife and your kids. You're just once in a while around, but not often, you know. And uh, and that's why I have so much respect and admiration for, for Judy because she did it all. I mean, she raised the kids. She did. But you're right. I mean, this thing became something that you pour your heart and soul into it because it it had your name on it. And that's what I've always believed, and that's what I still try to tell players. That your name's on the back of that jersey. It's your team. You better show ownership. More perspectives following this from ViStar Credit Union. At ViStar, we believe in better. Better convenience. So members can bank any way they want, whether it's at a branch, on a mobile device, or at one of more than 20,000 fee-free ATMs across North America. We believe that people have better things to do with their time. If you believe that convenience is better, join ViStar. We never forget that it's your money. All loans subject to approval, insured by NCUA. Having bought into the vision, Coughlin had a lot to accomplish if the Jaguars were going to be ready for opening day 1995. No task was more important or higher on the priority list than finding a quarterback. If you can remember and think about an expansion team with the three quarterbacks we had, ho, Steve Berline, Mark Brunel, and Rob Johnson, who was... Baselli's teammate at USC, you know, who was a big-time arm and a, <laughs> a 
a wacky kid, but oh, he was a beauty. He used to give Brunel all kinds of heat, and it was great. It was funny sometimes. But uh, uh, well, I went traveled around the league, and I, I knew a lot about Mark because of his success at Washington and the style of quarterback. So remember, in the back of my mind, it's going to be an expansion offensive line. And I just felt like if you can't move, if, you can't, if you're not mobile, you're going to have a tough time in this situation. And so that was a big part of it. I watched them practice, not long, just a – Mike Holmgren had many, you know, even what he called a two-a-day. His afternoon practice was quick, short, boom, 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 boom. And, uh, but I saw him live. And then I began to look and look and study and so on and so forth. But the but the unique thing, the unique thing was the way we acquired them, and that was really interesting. I mean, it's literally the night before the first draft in the history of this franchise, and I pick up on the fact that he was headed for Philadelphia, and the deal was well well down the road, but something happened. There was a snag in the deal, okay. I picked up the phone, and I called Ron Wolf on the phone. And I said, Ron, I understand what, what's going on, and I know you're well down the road on this, but I want to tell you up front, okay, that here's what I'd be willing to do for Mark Brunel, okay, and there is no, I have to wait till tomorrow. I'll do it right now, right on the spot. You won't have, there's not, you'll have these, these picks in place for the, for the draft. There's not going to be any dancing around, okay? I would like this quarterback, and I would, you know, I forget what how it went. It went the third round, and then he said, well, can you give me something else so I can really make this look like I'm not a – I said, sure. So I gave him a fifth, I gave him a third, and I gave him a fifth. But remember, I had two in each round, so it was a good thing. So um, we pulled that one off, and it was like <laughs> a couple of years later when – Brunel's running up down the field, and Wolf is looking at me like I've got two heads, you know, like, you son of a gun, you son of a gun. But it, you know, it, it just was. And then Steve started, and he should have, you know, and and uh, we missed that one up in the corner of the end zone in that opener. We might have won the first game in the history of the franchise because it was a battle. But uh, it was, uh, but getting Mark and being able to have some mobility and at that time, and Jimmy come along and, Mark and Jimmy hook, hook up and Keenan and you know that was that was some some fun. The next pressing issue was the 1995 NFL Draft, which presented the Jaguars with a chance to add a cornerstone type of player, and Coughlin wasn't about to swing and miss on that. I can tell you this in all honesty. I, so I go out to Mike Mazur and I, and there's five other NFL line coaches there to work Tony out the day we were there. I still remember 6'7", 327. Uh, but I've never seen anybody move around like that. I mean, the feet were unreal, you know. And he had a, a buddy of his who was an offensive guard who actually started and played, who worked out with him. And I felt bad for the kid because Tony was bouncing around like a premier, the premier athlete that he is. And the other kid was just hanging on. You know, it was one of those deals. But so we knew, we knew what. You know, I remember uh, Jim Hannafin saying to me, so what do you think, Coach? What are you going to do? And I said, I'd probably take a receiver. He looked at me, yeah, you're going to take a receiver. So, I mean, all we did, and, and Tony gave me a little grief when he came in. The, What'd you wait so long for, Coach? Well, you know, I'm sitting there saying I got this. You know, we're on the clock, but come on. 
somebody come up and tell me you want this spot so I can find out if you want my player. If you don't want my player, then maybe I can pick up another draft pick. But uh, so right at the, you know, we knew all along what we were going to do. So when we took Tony and we finally got he and Angie in here, he said, Coach, what the heck were you doing? What took so long? You know, he's sitting there antsy about because we, you know, we called him to find out how he, he was healthy and all the things you go through. So, yeah, that, that was that was critical, critical for us. Coughlin didn't account for good fortune as he made his plan for the Jaguars, but he got some early when personnel boss Ron Hill found former second-round draft choice Jimmy Smith sitting at home in Mississippi, pondering life and wondering if there was another chance for him in professional football. When Jimmy first came in here, it wasn't all that impressive, okay? And Pete kept saying, give him a little time, give him a little time, give him a little time, okay? We're giving him a little time, we're giving him a little time. And then all of a sudden, you know, the story of the, the way the thing went, he's He's leading our team in completion and in, in receptions. He doesn't even start. He's 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 the third guy on the field. But with Jimmy's development, okay, and the the communication between he and Mark, okay, and then the the arrogance with which eighty seven played, you know, and these things started to come together and people started to feel better about who they were. And we would I mean, we just prayed press Jimmy, please, please press him. You know, we're playing teams like, you know, Denver, who is up there the whole ball game, and, I mean, it's like, hallelujah, here we go. The coach kept planning his work and working his plan. Through training camp in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, a rigorous five-game exhibition season, and right up to the start of the inaugural season. Patience was required, but Coughlin is famously impatient, and it figured to be a tough ride. It's keeping your nose to the grindstone and trying to judge improvement rather than wins. You know what I mean? Personnel, improvement, going in the right direction. I mean, I was hard on them. I was very hard on them, and we were a unified team. And I say it, it's, it sounds funny. It may not be, but they were, they were all unified because they hated me. But they played. And even that first team might have been one of the toughest teams that I've ever been around. They were a tough outfit now. And, uh, you know, we played people really tough and hard and, you know, so on and so forth, although we only won four in that first year. But uh, it was the constant, constant ability to, you know, keep your thumb on where you're going, you know, keep your eye on your on your team, keep your coaches pushing, pushing, pushing. Don't be overcome with the, the negativity. You know, don't don't let it get to you. Fight it off. You know, continue to teach and continue to to build more than just the football part of it. Talk about being good people, good human beings. You know how things should be done. Uh, you know the the type of uh, character that has to be in place in order for you to win. The type of work ethic. Outwork people. You know, continuously sell that, and that's basically what what it was. And you know, e- even in year two. You know, when, when we, we are better, but how much better are we? We're still collecting players. You know, we've still got some things going on that, that need to be fixed, but we're, we're making, we're getting there. The Wolves were beginning to howl at the door in November of 1996. 
more than halfway through the second season, the Jaguars were a modest 4-7 and, and seemed far, far behind expansion rival Carolina. Dave Thomas suffered a gruesome leg injury in Cincinnati. A five-interception game from Mark Brunel in St. Louis doomed them to a loss, and the decision to part ways with Andre Risen after a shaky game in Pittsburgh left the Jaguars at the very edge of a steep cliff, the kind that most teams don't recover from. But something turned in the most important month of an NFL season, and it turned at the most critical time for the head coach. I think it was the long road, the tough road, the tough season, and then being 9-7 and seven and getting in. You know, all of a sudden everybody's healthy. All of a sudden everybody's excited. All of a sudden everybody... And then the opportunity thing, it's sitting right in front of us. It's, it, it's the chance of a lifetime. And, uh, you know, it probably is where that road warrior thing started because we were tough on the road. I mean, we didn't, I mean, we could go into the most difficult of environments and, and play tough. And, uh, and we did. And, and it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was the, the little subtle things, but it was also the come from behinds and things of that nature, you know, and, and, and the confidence that was starting to be built, thinking that we we could score, you know, we could do some things. And we were, you know, we had pretty good leadership on both sides of the ball, to be honest with you. The Jaguars' dramatic run to 9-7, and seven, followed by improbable playoff wins in Buffalo and in Denver, ignited the collective imagination of North Florida and set winning as the expectation in Jacksonville. So we beat Buffalo in the playoffs in 96, and we're headed for Denver. Now, this is John Elway. All right, they've they are Super Bowl champions. Okay, they have a heck of a football team, a great team. Mike Shanahan's the head coach. We go out there, nobody gives us a chance to win. Okay, anytime I've ever won anything, nobody gives us a chance to win. Okay, we go out there, and uh, it's one of those games. And I remember, you know, ball up in the end zone, Burnell making that gazelle-like runs, people flying around and, you know, defense banging away and just, you know, back and forth enough to keep us where we are in the game. And we're ahead at the end of the game. And uh, it's about to be a – they don't have any timeouts. And I tell Dick Geron, who was a defensive coordinator, I said, Dick, just make sure that when they do score, it's under two minutes. Just do – they're going to score. They're going to score. We're up, what, 10? They're going to score. But when they do, make sure it's under two minutes because they don't have any timeouts. Sure enough, he goes down, bang, bang, bing, 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 and he scores. It's under two. They line up for the onside kick, and quite frankly, you can tell they've, they've been winning by so much, they don't, they don't even know how to line up for the onside kick. You know, they, don't, they, they bunted the ball back to Lachey Maston was our fullback right. who was in the middle of the, of the hands team. And Lachey recovers the ball, really uncontested. It's not much of a kick. You just <laughs> and everybody's going. The league is in complete shock, okay? Because if we don't beat them, then they're going to win three in a row, okay? And it's just exactly what it was. Right. And 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 when we f- win that game, there's no way you could not smile. The locker room was. Fabulous, you know. Wayne was in there, and it was players were just players. Players were beside themselves because of what, you know, fellas, 
you sacrifice, you work your ever-loving off, you pay a great price. You can't quite see the end of the road, but you know if you're doing it the right way, it's going to happen. Things are going to happen good for you. You know, sometimes it takes longer than others, but it's going to happen. And there, there they go out against the great team in the National Football League at the time with a great running back and the greatest quarterback, you know, all that, all this stuff. Defense, you know, all, all, of, all of these things win. Players are going crazy. We get on a plane, we come back, and we're, you know, getting towards, and wait, wait a minute, the airport's over there. What's he doing? He starts to bank the plane. And then they announced that you look down and there's 36,000 people in the stadium waiting for us at 1 o'clock in the morning to get back from the airport. It, it's, it's unreal. It's un, it was an un, unbelievable feeling to know that, man, oh man, we get, the whole town is behind this team. And we're having fun doing it. You know, We're having a lot of fun doing it. Mark and Tony, Jimmy and Keenan, Hardy and Brackens. The foundations were in place in the spring of 1998. Then a trade with Buffalo and an incredible pro day performance in Florida brought the missing element to a championship team. First of all, um, Fred was a product of the development of Rob Johnson and the trade. Okay, We wouldn't have been up there if it wasn't for that. But that's the critical thing about being able to keep those young quarterbacks around. Because you remember what Rob did. We go up to Baltimore. And he plays an incredible game on one leg. He gets the high ankle sprain. I got it, you know, I pull him out. He comes over to the sideline. He can't go back in. He can't, he's in my ear. Coach, let me go. I can go. I can do it. I can do it. By God, he did do it. He did do it. But that, you know, the whole world looked at that and said, my goodness, you know. So Fred became that spot in the draft. Buffalo spot. So it's a dynamic that we, quite frankly, don't have. So I'm looking to see. Now, Fred's career at Florida, it's at the end of, the, of his career that they finally play him and use him. And he has some incredible games, but there's not a lot of them. So I go over to work. We go over to work him out. And I love their stadium. It might be the fastest track in the history of tracks, okay? Everybody wants to run a 40 on that grass. Couldn't do it. So we had to, for whatever reason, something was going on, and, and we conducted the workouts down on their practice field, which is just like any practice field, to be honest. He's, he's 230 pounds, six foot, whatever, you know. He runs 4-4 four, four on my clock. Some had him under 4-4, four, four, you know. It's like when I talk to him about the, I call it an 89-yarder. He, he calls it a 90, you know. So, but he comes over. He's a young kid. He's got a long way to go. And he, uh, you know, first of all, he, he, on the day that the rookies come in, and we, we warn them all. I mean, this is going to be a conditioning test, and it's a tough test. He doesn't do quite well. Yeah. He doesn't do as well as he should. He's the number one draft choice, but yet he's not the top conditioned athlete. So that's how he starts out. And he's he's embarrassed. He feels bad about it, but it's a done deal, you know. So we get to camp, and we're going to work against New Orleans. The first drill is nine on seven. <laughs> the 
the bodies are flying. You know, it's 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 uh, Hazlitt, you know, who's got them all gunned up, and we're <laughs> so Fred. And so this is I'm jumping way ahead, but I go to the combine a couple of years ago, and Fred's brought in by the league to speak to the rookies, you know, to speak to them. And I walk in and I see a crowd of people around this guy and they're interviewing him. But I see it's Fred, so I go over and. I see Fred, and he comes over, he gives me a hug. Remember, he finished, he was in New England for the end of his career. So we stood there and talked for a minute, and he kind of hugs me, and he says, Coach, I get it. I get it now. He said, I was with you, and then I was with New England, and I get it. I get it now. So I said, great. He so eloquent, so smart, you know, had it all together. So we walk around the corner, we're by the elevators, and he goes, Coach, you know, you were trying to kill me. And I said, no, no, I wasn't trying to kill you, but I was trying to get you ready for what, what was coming real quick. And we laughed and stuff. And he goes, oh, he said, Coach, I got to run because I have my next appointment. Elevator opens. He steps into the elevator. The elevator doors are starting to close. He said, Coach, I love you, but you were trying to kill me. <laughs> and then the door shuts like that. But, uh, I mean, we've never – I mean, you can remember. Remember Tampa? He goes 70 with a draw. Uh, out here with uh, Miami, the, the things that he did, you know. I, I mean, if he doesn't get hurt, we're gonna we're we're gonna have what we keep saying we are. We're a balanced team. You know, we're gonna be able to do this. We're gonna do that. Because when he gets out there, he's gone. I mean, there's nobody gonna catch him. And uh, and but I think the the proudest part of it is the way that he developed as a man. You know, the way that he kind of put it all together. And the and the and the the person that he is today. The rookie from Florida exploded all over the National Football League. And in his second season, the Jaguars went from a contender to the favorite. 14 wins in the regular season and a historic 62-7 win over Miami in the divisional round set up the AFC Championship game against the Titans. The only team to beat the Jaguars in 1999. I'm telling you, I've been Super Bowls, I've been, but that stadium was electric that day. I mean, electric. They were going crazy. Pre-game was as incredible as I've ever been around. Home field, I mean, you could, you, feel, you felt it. You know, it was the real deal. You know, we, we jump out with a nice, nice lead. They come back. You know, we, we have the fumble punt. They kick the field goal. But at halftime, our guys are rattled. What the heck's wrong with you guys? You know, we're up 14 to 10. Settle down, settle down. Well, there was nothing to the second half. We don't do a thing. And they, we should have been the team in Atlanta. That game, it hovered over the franchise like a dark cloud. And the injuries and salary cap issues would begin to hover as well. What looked like a dynasty now looked ready to dissipate. And in 2003, after three consecutive losing seasons, Tom Coughlin was asked to leave. It was tough. It was, it was, it was really, uh, Really difficult, really difficult. And, you know, uh, I mean, this is coach talk, but even in the last year, we lost five games by 12 points, I think. And stupid losses. The Cleveland loss was ridiculous. I mean, ridiculous. Uh, and the ball was dropped, and they still wouldn't they, they still wouldn't change the call, you know. But... Uh, it was hard. Believe me, it was hard. It was, you know what, and it was really hard because when 
when you're told that your services are no no longer wanted. I mean, it's cr- a crushing blow to who you are, you know. And I can remember uh, the, my car had been moved around to the dock. I wasn't going to talk to anybody. I wasn't going to do that. So then I went home and I had to tell my kids, you know. And uh, I'm sitting on the st- – Ernie and Rita came over, you know, and I was sitting on the – stair steps, you know, that go up to the second floor. I just sat there and maybe we had a table right there, but I'm sitting on that. And uh, they're trying to make you feel better and it's it doesn't work. You know, it's not going to work. You don't want to see anybody. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to go out here, you know. So, but the thing that happened, which was incredible for me was so I, I did, you know, I mean, obviously there's things you have to do, so I'm I, I did go out in the community, basically out, you know, out at the beach, you know, Ponte Vedra and around there. People were great. They were amazing. Thank you, Coach. Thank you, Coach. So my dauber came up a little bit, you know, and, uh, you know, it. but it hurt. It definitely hurt. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't ashamed to admit it, you know, and, uh, so, you know, life marches on, and there's things that that happen in life that are uh, are incredible. Really, uh, the way the good Lord deals with you, you know, yeah. don't get such a big head, buddy, because you're in for one or two. You know, you you're gonna get yours. But uh, but the idea of uh, you know what you go through, and then I stayed here, which is. People don't do that now. They go somewhere. I stayed in that same house in uh, Harbor Island because, quite frankly, I wasn't going to move and move again. I mean, I thought that was stupid, you know. And uh, I did have to go through a season, but I got myself back to football, you know. And Mike Perkins kept me stocked with tape. And I had the upstairs room. We had a, a kind of a game room upstairs that I would take over. And I would, uh, I'd go to Mass Sunday morning, and I'd say to the family, I'll see you guys probably Monday night. And up I would go for the 1 o'clock, and then the 4.30, and then the night game, you know. And I would watch everything, take notes. And the Monday night game would be the same way. And I would get tape on Monday from, from Mike, and I would pick the games I wanted to look at. And I would be able to look at those games and study and uh, in the meantime, you know, life goes on. And uh, I remember the first phone call from John Mara. And uh, I remember uh, Kate was home the whole fall. And uh, she was going back for second semester of, of her senior year at Boston College. So she and Dylan and Chris Snee flew in from the bowl game, which was in Hawaii. And... Uh, we had, uh, uh, I think it was yeah, Dylan's baptism. Then in the car they went. They left January 5th. I left either the next day, and I went to New York, and I never, I never came back. More perspectives following this from Star Credit Union. 
At ViStar, we believe in better, especially in helping build a better financial future for our members. So we've reviewed our offerings from the ground up. We've lowered or eliminated over half our fees and enhanced our already competitive rates. Saving members more than a million dollars this year, in addition to the millions we save them every year. If you believe that saving money is better, join ViStar. We never forget that it's your money. All loans subject to approval, insured by NCUA. What happened with the Giants is well chronicled. Coughlin took a different team to the promised land and won two Super Bowl championships. He was working in New York in the fall of 2016 and thinking about his next steps in football when the owner of the Jaguars called, the new owner. I was at the league office, okay? And it was, I had done a lot of stuff during the course of the year with surveys and all kinds of stuff, trying to feed Roger information that the head coaches were saying about what had to be done with the game. Um, And it got to be that, uh, I don't know, what was it? It was early January, I guess, early January. And it was... Uh, the, the Jaguars had fired their coach. Uh, my The first thing is I came down and talked to Shad on the boat down here um, and then went back to the league, no problem. And we talked about a lot of things, not just a head job here. But uh, So when that other opportunity came up, and it was really interesting because uh, I had basically told Shad, you know, I can help in a lot of capacities. I can... I can help the head coach. I can help the general manager. I can help the owner. I can help in a lot of capacities because I've done a lots of different things in the course of my career, and I have, you know, a little bit of knowledge about a lot of a lot of things. So I can help. And uh, so Shad called back, and it was really just a matter of minutes, and it was a done deal. And uh, I remember I, I went upstairs to tell Roger, okay, and he already knew it. And uh, so he, you know, and I was kind of basing everything on, well, you know, uh, I'll I'll come back tomorrow, clean my desk up, and then I'll. So he comes down a minute later, Roger does, and he starts talking about, well, you got your hands full, but it's going to be good for the league because you're going to be there and they'll be better. And he said, uh, so what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, i got to get work. You better get at it. <laughs> so I le- So I left. <laughs> I just got my stuff together and left. So I hadn't been through that front door in that, in any kind of capacity in all the time that I've been. I, I've been here, I think, but not through that door. So that was interesting. And then there's a few people that I have a chance to say hello to again. But uh, it was different, much different, you know, much different. And then uh, trying to talk Doug into taking the office that I'm in, he didn't want it. I'm basically in the office I was in when I was here, which – I don't know how fair that is for everybody, but that's where I am. It felt like deja vu in 2017. The Jaguars were in the AFC Championship game, in New England no less. Tom Coughlin was back in teal and black. Now, 25 years since he first arrived in Jacksonville, he smiles and shakes his head, himself somewhat surprised and certainly thrilled to be back with the Jaguars. And for a man who's always focused on the future... He's happy to share some fond stories from the past. I'll tell you a story, the true story, okay? I come here to accept the job, and the job uh, is the, the press conference is at a bank. You remember this well. It's at a bank. Okay. I, I don't see anything. Press conference is over. I'm back in a car out to the airport. Uh, Wayne's plane takes me 
back to Boston. I haven't even seen my team yet at Boston College. That was that hurt. That was not well done by me. But I didn't. I don't. Know, I didn't have a whole lot of choice. So so uh, I come back a week later. I got everything in order, and I come back. Pouring rain, you know. Pull up in a car. The mud's this deep. It's all dirt. Okay. There's one sta- concrete stanchion. That's it. Okay. There's one trailer. I walk through the mud. I go up the steps. I walk in the front door. There's someone's over here at a desk. Okay. I walk in. They don't even have a desk for me. Yeah. They say, uh, Mr. Weaver, when he's here, he sits at that desk. He's not here a lot. Why don't you take that desk? And those are, you know, non no cell phone days. Those are, you know, land, land phones. So I look around and I'm saying to myself, what in hell have you gotten yourself into this time? Because that's what it looked like at first. Because the wheels weren't in motion, you know, until we made it get in motion, until we got more people here. And then they would put another trailer on. Remember how that went? It would be trailer. Okay, we need room. Trailer. But the wheels weren't in motion right away. I mean, I'm trying to drum up, you know, what we're going and put, put, putting a plan together and so on and so forth. Another one of those deals where I, I'm never going back home. They all got to come to me. So, uh, but that was the first, my first introduction to, there was no stadium. There was no nothing. Okay. We weren't going to play until 95, but a lot of things had to happen quick. 25 years later, his desire to bring a Lombardi trophy to Jacksonville is still burning as bright as it did back then. People usually, when they leave, they're either, even when they're booted, they don't want anything to do with it. They don't come back. But different situation, both both with um, Boston College and with the Giants, and hopefully with this. I hope it turns out the same way. <laughs> 